Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. We lost our humanity. We lost our dignity. We got punished for something we did not do. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells the story of the Black 14. Our young lives were flipped upside down. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello, I'm Audrey Brown, and today in Focus on Africa, here on the BBC World Service, we're discussing why most of the children begging on the streets of Kampala come from a particular region of Uganda. President Macky Sall of Senegal said last night that he will step down when his mandate ends in April. But our West Africa correspondent, Mayeni Jones, told me he hasn't announced a new date for the election. That's been the main criticism of his speech. It was, you know, one of the first times that he's spoken since the beginning of this enormous political crisis that's rocked Senegal. He then went on to say that he didn't think it'd be possible to hold elections before then, which just leaves the question as to, well, what happens then? And what's been happening to some of the students who had to flee Ukraine when the war with Russia began two years ago? After seeing those explosions in front of our buildings, it was scary. And I thought, like, it's not going to end so soon. And uh, I don't know. I just hope it ends soon. It's Friday, the 23rd of February. First, we go to Uganda. This story begins with the sentencing of around 100 women to a month of community service for allowing the children to beg on the streets of Kampala. Many of the women pleaded with the court, saying they were widows or single mothers who needed support to look after their children. The judge said he had heard their cries and decided that a jail sentence would be inappropriate. All this was reported in newspapers like the New Vision and the Daily Monitor. The women were arrested during a crackdown to remove poor people from the streets ahead of several international conferences in Uganda. Now that's not unusual. What is unusual is for women to be charged for the actions of their children. Sending children to beg is a crime in Uganda. But when we took a closer look at the story, it wasn't quite as straightforward as it first appeared. For instance, most of the children come from the same part of Uganda, the northeast. So what's going on? Who are these children? And how do they end up on the streets of the capital, far away from their homes? We found someone to help us find the answers. So, Canary, you've just stopped at a petrol station to allow us to have this interview. <laughs> you were in the teeth of the fearful traffic of Kampala. Boda bodas, cars everywhere, people on their way to prayers and so on. It's busy on a Friday afternoon. One of the other features of traffic in Kampala, I know children standing by traffic lights, soliciting money, begging for food. Where do these children come from? Who are they? The children that are begging along the traffic road, they are known as Karamajong. Karamajong is a tribe. They come from a place called Karamoja in northeastern Uganda. That's why they're called Karamajong. I know that Karamajong is the region that is very troubled for a number of years with cattle rustling and gun running and so on. And it's also one of the poorest regions in Uganda, is it not? It is, but also 
when it comes to other sectors like health, education, their children are not as educated as other regions. In terms of even having like facilities for, let's say, transport, education, schools are like always at the bottom end. What are the age ranges of these children? And do they run away from home, their home region, or are they sent to Kampala or cities like Kampala to go and beg? The age range of these children is 7 to 15. And they are not sent, neither do they run away from their homes to go to the streets of Kampala. They are actually sold. By who? I've investigated before. There's a very busy town after Karamoja in the eastern part of Uganda. It's called uh, Soroti. Inside Soroti is a shift market, which means only happens like once a week, which is a Thursday. So what happens is that they sell, you know, animals like goats and pigs and cows. They sell commodities like clothes. They sell fruits. They sell vegetables and food. But inside the same market, they also sell these children. They are lined up like commodities and they are sold as low as uh, 50,000 Ugandan shillings. Uh, when you convert that to dollars, that's about $13. Who is selling children? It's a big cartel uh, involving even the leadership of um, Eastern Uganda, local government leadership. These are people who are very informed about how, you know, Kampala runs and, and, and the begging uh, business. So they go to eastern Uganda and uh, they're like scouts. So these kids arrive on a very big truck from Karamoja and then settle in eastern Uganda in this market every Thursday and then they are sold. So they are scouts within that market that actually um, try and negotiate with their mothers. $11, $12, $13, up to $15, you're able to get yourself um, a little girl. You send the money to the mother and then you go out with a girl. So the parents of the children are part of the arrangement, are they? Yes, they are, in a way, because they say that uh, as opposed to starving with these girls, their children, they would rather go and become busy elsewhere, do something else. And they can use these 13 doors probably to survive for the next maybe 30 days. So when the children are on the street, are they begging, soliciting money for themselves or do they have to give the money to somebody else? They are agents which means they are soliciting money for their bosses. After they hand over this money at the end of the day, they are given a commission. I spoke to them and I you know, was able to follow the entire chain. What makes it possible for this to happen to these children? There's a law against it, isn't it? This is trafficking. This is trafficking. And uh, what makes them very vulnerable is because other regions are able to grow food. For example, different parts of Uganda known for growing certain types of food. Eastern Uganda is known for growing coffee. Uh, Western Uganda is, is known for growing uh, bananas and some beans and cotton. And so different regions are known for growing different foods and they're able to not just uh, sell these foods, but also uh, benefit by getting from the garden and taking straight to the kitchen. But in Karamoja, where these children come from, they are not known for growing anything. First of all, uh, the land is not as fertile as other parts of the country. It's very dry. And um, it has actually improved over time, um, and, and it's now green. But just that there's not been deliberate attention to this part of the country in terms of making sure that, for example, they're able to grow food which they can survive on or which they can sell. The reason why we're talking about this is because more than 100 women have been sentenced to one-month community service after they were found guilty in court of sending their children to beg in, in, in Kampala. 
Is that unusual for women especially to be sentenced in this way? Because uh, I believe there was a clear out um, in Uganda recently of uh, children begging. Now, we know that that's something that often happens in African countries where poorer people are scooped out of the city until the visitors have left. But is it? I, I haven't heard of women being arrested and charged um, as part of that. It's unusual because government is just being reactive. Um, they know where the problem is coming from. They know the agents, they know the cartel. But because maybe the cartel is so big and the business is so lucrative, they do not want to touch the cartel. The women are just um, uh, sacrificial lambs because there are factors that push these women to actually offer their children to be bought and go and beg in Kampala. When, for example, some of these came to light, they uh, put a penalty for cash handouts. So if there are beggars on the streets and you give them money, that's a crime in Kampala. It's called the Child Ordinance Act. But now, as a reaction to make sure that they put an end to the begging on the streets and these uh, Karamojong children coming on the street, one, they tried to get them off the streets by taking them to rehabilitation centers. That didn't work, and they've been doing it for the last five years. The children have only increased. But also, important to note, is that what they did is uh, resort to their mothers and try to send them to community service because they are offering their children. All I can say is that the problem is dealing with the cartel. And why the mothers and not the fathers? And in fact, why not improve conditions in Karamajong? It's a, a region of chronic instability. Has the government in any way responded to this, trying to improve conditions in Karamajong? There are many programs that really tailored to this community called Karamoja. It has representatives in parliament. It has been given all the attention, just that it's not deliberate. It's not really responding to some of the causes of the problems. So I think the government and uh, all these programs, even the donors have actually injected a lot of money in Karamoja, but nothing has changed. I think that the government needs to be very deliberate. And by deliberate, I mean, for example, I know of a pastor who has said, you know what, we'll go to Karamoja and plant maize, and this maize can be turned into flour, and people will be able to eat, we call it posho here, which is uh, really mixing uh, water and, and wheat and flour, not wheat flour, but flour, corn flour, to be able to have some food, which is a, a very good delicacy around Uganda. So, And that has actually helped a little, but it's just a drop in the ocean. And thanks for correcting me, it's Karamoja, and the people are the Karamajong, right? Yes, that's right. Excellent. Kanari, thank you very much for your expertise. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you very much. That's Kanari Mutumbe, an investigative journalist with NBC in Uganda. Senegal has been tense and in turmoil for months now because President Macky Sall postponed the election which was due to be held on Sunday. He also had his opponents arrested. Now this kind of shocked everyone, given that President Sall had come into office off the back of protests against his predecessor, Abdullahi Wad, who'd wanted to stay in power beyond his mandate. The elections won't go ahead now, but the president has agreed to follow the constitution and step down when his term ends. It should be said that he only agreed to this when the Constitutional Council stepped in and ordered him to do so. Mr. Sall made the announcement in an address to the nation last night. Having taken the oath on April the 2nd, 2019, by April the 2nd, 2024, the five calendar years will be up. So it's the end of the term. I plan to stop 
at this term. And so after April the 2nd, I will leave my duties as President of the Republic. Now, it's clear that the country cannot remain without a President of the Republic. It's the upcoming dialogue that will have to decide if a consensus can be reached on what follows. Mr. Sal also said he was prepared to release the leading opposition politician Usman Sonko from prison. Other prisoners have already been freed in terms of the Constitutional Council ruling. There was one thing the president didn't do, and that's what I discussed with our West Africa correspondent, Mayeni Jones. He didn't announce a new date for the election, did he? Yeah. Yeah, he didn't, unfortunately, for those people in Senegal who were hoping that he would. And I think that that's been the main criticism of his speech. It was, you know, one of the first times that he's spoken since the beginning of this enormous political crisis that's rocked Senegal and has led to street protests and accusations of a constitutional coup by the opposition. But he did say that he would step down, as we heard in the clip just now, by the end of his mandate. So that's by the 2nd of April. He then went on to say that he didn't think it'd be possible to hold elections before then, which just leaves the question as to, well, what happens then when you step down? If there, if nobody else has been elected, who will run the country? He says that will be decided in these dialogues, these conversations that are happening between the government and members of the opposition and, and the election authorities. But it does leave the country in a fair bit of uncertainty. Could this be just another stalling tactic? Because I can't believe that the constitution of Senegal doesn't have a procedure for what happens if there's an interregnum like now. In other countries, it would be the speaker or it would be the deputy, you know, as is, for instance, in the case of Namibia, where the president died. And, and you know, they, they had a process through which that could happen. I mean, they would definitely be justified in thinking that it might be a stalling tactic simply because Mr. Sal has form for kind of delaying or, or not being kind of fully truthful with his statements. So, for instance, you know, last year he was repeatedly asked if he would try and run for third term. He said he wouldn't. And then, as we saw earlier this month, on the day that campaigning was supposed to start, he he said that he had to delay the elections and, and try to stay in power until the end of the year. So, you know, his critics are very doubtful of what he says. And this morning, the opposition's told the press that, you know, they want elections to be held before the 2nd of April, as the Constitution says. They're still planning on protesting uh, on Saturday. They want to keep applying pressure on Macky Sall, and they want to make sure that elections happen on time. So Senegal's not quite out of the woods yet in, in terms of this kind of uncertainty and these protests uh, that have been rocking the country in the last few weeks. So he also announced the start of a national dialogue on Monday. How will that work and who will come? Will the opposition go? Yeah, so it's meant to include the opposition, members of the government, uh, election authorities. Mr. Sal has always said that his concern is national unity, that the reason why he was attempting to postpone the elections is because he felt that the country was very divided after a very fractious year where key opposition candidates uh, were stopped from being on the ballot, including Osman Sonko, who's very popular with young Senegalese people. He's uh, under detention. And even now with Mr. Sal saying that he'll respect the constitution 
Constitutional Council's decision that his delay was illegal and hold elections. Usman Sonko is still not going to be in the ballots, which I think is very frustrating to a lot of his supporters. So it's been a very difficult year for the country. The country's highly divided, and he says that he wanted to kind of encourage unity. So these talks are meant to be not just a way to kind of decide when elections are going to be, take place, how they're going to take place, but also a kind of way of bringing everybody together and smoothing out some of these kinks. Now, how how that's going, uh, it, it's not clear, but that's certainly what he's saying is his intention. So Usman Sonko is in jail, and he did also say, um, President Makisal, that they would consider releasing Usman Sonko, or did he make clear that Usman Sonko will definitely be released? So he said he'd consider it when he was asked kind of questions by journalists. And that was big news for a lot of people because Mr. Sonko is seen as one of his main opponents. As I mentioned, he's got huge support with young Senegalese people. And when he was on trial last year and when he was detained, there were a nationwide protests across Senegal. So he is seen as the kind of the person that could potentially replace Mr. Sal in a way that would be satisfactory to a lot of Senegalese voters. Now, the problem is once he comes out, he has hasn't said that he will be able to be on the ballot and there's such little time you know it's almost March now so there's less than you know just over a month before Mr. Sal the end of Mr. Sal's mandate and people haven't even started campaigning so the idea that Mr. Sonko would be on the ballot I think at the moment most people agree that that's not going to happen but as I said that that will be a point of contention for a lot of people who see him as a very viable candidate. Mr. Sal's actions in trying to postpone the election came as a shock to many people. But was it a surprise? What was he thinking? Because Senegal had this reputation as a very stable country, a stable democracy. And he himself, in fact, came into power off the back of the strength of, of protests against Abdullah Iwad, who had tried to extend his mandate. So I'm just wondering, has he explained himself in any way? Yeah, that's that's um, that is ironic that you know when Abdullah Iwad tried to do the same thing, Mr. Saab was one of the people, and and there's a famous quote now going round of him saying that the president of Senegal cannot stay in post more than a day after the end of his mandate. That that would, you know, he'd be considered not in power uh, after his mandate, and so the country would be thrown in, in crisis. You know, he's given explanations that you know he he's trying to smooth in these kinks with the opposition that he wants to bring the country together. I think for many people who don't follow Senegalese politics, perhaps this would have come as a surprise because, as you say, it's a country that has strong institutions where uh, the population does feel emboldened and empowered to come out into the streets. But rights groups groups have been warning for a few years now that a lot of basic rights, democratic rights, are being impinged on and have been impinged on under Mr. Sal's administration. So, you know, a lot of protesters, for instance, were arrested, arbitrarily arrested, whilst protesting against the detention of Usman Sonko. A lot of freedom of expression has been squashed, according to groups like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. So there has been, even though Senegal still remains relatively Democratic, particularly compared to its neighbours, all of which have, have been through coup d'etats and some of which are currently on military rule, there have been this kind of slow erosion of certain uh, democratic norms that observers have warned could board, you know, could be a sign of bad things to come in the future. Myeni Jones covers West Africa for the BBC. Two years ago tomorrow, the people of Ukraine woke to these sounds. Ah! 
President Vladimir Putin had made good on a threat to invade Ukraine. As the fighting intensified, millions of people were displaced. Many fled, scattering to different parts of Europe and further afield. Among them, tens of thousands of foreign nationals, including African students studying at Ukrainian universities. Now, staying in Ukraine could be fatal. So that wasn't really an option. But leaving was very, very difficult. We heard from some of the students here on Focus on Africa. Many of them described harrowing journeys as they were shot at, threatened and subjected to racist abuse as they tried to reach safety. This is Jessica from Nigeria. The, the term walking is traumatizing me. The term walking, I walked for 12, 12 good hours. And it's not an exaggeration. The traffic warden saw me and said I should go to a shelter to sleep. And I slept and he said the next day that there is a bus going from that shelter straight to the Polish border. And when it was time to get on this bus, the Ukrainians said, just Ukrainians, literally as a black person, I even lied that I was pregnant. They didn't care. I was begging. The official literally looked me in my eye and said in his language, only Ukrainians, that's all. That if you are black, you should walk. Two years on, we've been talking to some of those who had to leave. Where are they now and what's been happening to them? Haifa Juma is from Tanzania. She found her way out along with other students. Like many others, she continued her medical degree online back home in Tanzania. But she told me she'd gone back to Sumi, the town where she was studying. She explained why she went back, even though the war is still raging. I came back here on the 8th of September, like starting my journey back from home. And I reached here like directly, not from Sumi, but in Tenopil. Stayed there for three days and then I came here in Sumi. And I came back because I wanted to do offline classes. I wanted to continue my classes, but offline, like I'm doing a medical course. And a third-year student is more of practical than theory. So, yeah, I decided to come back. Yeah, the war is still going on, but we had some friends who are still here in Sumi. We talked to them, like, uh, asking them questions, how is the situation there, how is everything going? And, like, their answers were positive. Like, now everything is better here. You can hear sirens sometimes. But in general, the situation is good. Shops are open. Everything is fine. So, okay, yeah. So I came back. Weren't you nervous, though? Because, I mean, when you left, there was a war going on. And every day we still see pictures of war. Was it an easy choice for you to make? At first, it was not. But then the pressure back home, like you have to study, not online classes. You have to do offline and then I had to do offline classes. I was scared at first, but then we had a Tanzanian student who was here in Sumi. He also came back and uh, then I said, okay, I'll go for it because I was not alone. I had some other Tanzanians as well. So, yeah. So when you went back to Sumi, what did you find? Were there other students from other countries that had also come back? Yes, we have Indians and Nigerians here, international students in our hostel. 
So when you came back, was it as you expected or was it better than you expected? It was better than I expected because before we left here, it was the situation was worse. But now it's much better. It's good and I liked it here. So you say that you only experienced the war with now and again sirens. When the war broke out and in those first few months, was Sumi directly attacked? Maybe a little outside of Sumi because here in our hostel, you can just hear some sound. They even hit some electric, something like that. So let's go back to February 2022 uh-huh. when the war started. What was your experience and how did you get out? Because so many international students had to leave. At the time, um, we heard stories of how difficult it was for people to leave. Tell us what it was like for you. For me personally, at first, like the first day when we had the explosion, because it was early morning and we were sleeping and we had a very loud noise. And then uh, we had to wake up and then everyone was in panic. Especially for us Tanzanians, we don't have those situations back at home. It's new experience. And uh, that parents started calling, like, let's book a ticket so you can come back home. Like, there's war going on there. So it didn't take a lot of time and there was no any available plane like the airspace was closed and it was hard we started our journey we were four of us in a taxi and we reached from here sumi to poltava and we took a train from poltava to lviv and then from lviv to polish border it was hard and scary outside to be honest right so when you were coming back this time, were all those experiences in your mind? Did you wonder whether you'd made the right decision or not? At first, like I was 50-50. I don't know if I'm doing it right because I was not sure of the exactly situation here in Sumi. Like if you see news and what people are telling you are two different things. And uh, so I was 50-50. But uh, along the way, like it was not that bad. So when you were leaving, did you ever think you'll come back to Ukraine? Yes. To be honest, yes. Because there was this war during 2014, and uh, we just had, like, a student, it did not last that long, the war. And then students went back home to their countries, and then they returned to Ukraine and continued their studies. So for me, I knew that I'll be back. Because, like, it will not take long and we have to continue our studies. So, yeah. What did your parents say? Because, I mean, they would have been looking at what's going on there and thinking our child is not going to be safe. Did you have to work hard to persuade them to let you go back? Yes, it was a bit challenging. But at the same time, they wanted to be supportive. But they were also maybe scared, I'll say that. What if it's not safe there? I told them I'll not be alone. And we also have some other students there. They are studying there. And our city is safe than the other cities. So they, it took time, but then they agreed. They, they accepted it. So when you were in Tanzania studying online, how much support uh-huh. did you get from your school? Did you feel that they were doing everything they could to make it possible for you to learn? 
Yes, they were trying. Actually, yes. Like we were doing the same classes, but it was just online. Our teachers were there giving us tasks, materials and everything, checking on us. Like uh, they normally sent some kind of a Google form to fill about the students who are there, like who are self, who are still doing classes, who still wants to do classes. And sometimes our teachers, like, they message us, guys, are you, where are you? Is everything okay? So it was good. So the war has been going on for two years. You've been oh, yes. back for a couple of months. How does life feel? Do you feel like you'll be able to stay in Ukraine to finish your degree? Are you worried that the um, war might come closer and force you out again? Uh, in this February, the, on 6th, we had exam here in Sumi. But we had to do the exam croc in Kiev. And then the day after exam, the second day in the morning, there was an explosion and it was right in front of our eyes. Like it was early morning. And then like before I was starting to be okay, everything is fine. I don't hear those things. Now I think situation is getting better, just silence. But after seeing those explosion in front of our buildings, it was scary. And I thought, like, maybe this it will take a bit of time. It's not going to end so soon. And uh, I don't know. I just hope it ends soon. I think we all do, eh? We all hope that it ends soon. Yeah. Haifa Juma from Tanzania, now back in Ukraine. Focus on Africa was put together by Stefania Okereke, Sunita Nahar, and Noura Bida here in London. Patricia Whitehorn supervised our activities. Nick Randell was our technical producer. Andre Lombard and Alice Mudengi are our editors. Please find our podcast and like, follow, and subscribe. You won't regret it. I'm Audrey Brown. We'll talk again next time. When you see Iran close up, you realize just how complex a political landscape it is. The Global Story. Smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. It seems that Iran's strategy at the moment is to increase the tension in the Middle East. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. When Israel does agree to a ceasefire in Gaza, Iran will then worry about Israel then turning its sights towards Iran again. The Global Story. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Neu und majestätisch gut. Probier jetzt den Hamburger Royal Barbecue Bacon und den Hamburger Royal Smoky. Nur für kurze Zeit bei McDonald's. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten.